Today, I sit down with the author and executive producer of this podcast, Lenny Grimaldi. Lenny wrote the book, Chased, which this podcast is based on. For the next few episodes, I did a wide-ranging interview with Lenny and his experience writing and reporting on this important story that came to define Bridgeport, Connecticut in the 80s and 90s. Chase also had gone where no black undercover had gone before, infiltrating a drug faction of the Gambino crime family. Chase had a gifted communication skill set that allowed the color of green money to transcend his skin tone to cynical mobsters. The subject matter was also a sweet spot for me because I had chronicled organized crime families as a young reporter. Set the for people who don't really understand how dangerous was this time in the city of Bridgeport? Well, it wasn't just Bridgeport. You're talking about, you know, Bridgeport is, is, is a fascinating city in Connecticut. It's Connecticut's most populous city, but it has these urban areas that are smack right up against affluence. And you can be in Bridgeport it, along Long Island Sound, and the next town you get into what they call Connecticut's Gold Coast, you know, Fairfield and Westport and Darien and Stanford and Greenwich with all these stately mansions and mountain ranges of money. And, you know, traditional organized crime families, be it Italian gangs or drug gangs, I mean, there was so much money there. And by the way, we had the crack cocaine academic, epidemic that can make them more money. So there was money to be made. So it was really more of a regional approach. Bridgeport just so happened to be the place where he was born and raised and lived. But the work he did was far beyond Bridgeport, Connecticut. It was the Gold Coast of Fairfield County, the, the you know, Tony areas of, of Westport and Greenwich. Stanford as well, being a one of the preeminent locations back then for organized crime, particularly led by the Gambino crime family. So he, you know, bit by bit by bit, didn't ha didn't happen overnight. You know, he just made he just built relationships, undercover, you know, as this as this gifted, uh, silver-tongued um, drug dealer, right, who can make anybody money transcending his color because you know for the most part irrespective of what you hear about the traditional ma families they, they didn't really care as long as there was a buck in it for them they didn't really care who they dealt with as long as you're making me money you know it's okay so he was able to bit by bit um, a lot of it when it came to the work he did uh, in the Gambino crime family a lot of it was it was the Stanford, Connecticut area, close to New York City, not that far away. Talk to me about Joseph Walsh and who he was and why is, as his sort of reign of the Bridgeport PD, what do you remember about that? Oh, it, one of my favorite figures uh, in the history of covering law enforcement, talking about someone who had a gift for gab. Uh, and, and, and someone who was a big fan of Billy Chase's. And when Billy got started, 
Joe Walsh was uh, chief of the Bridgeport Police Department. He had re- he had resigned or he retired when when Billy was was still on the job. He was what I call old Irish. They don't make him like Joe Walsh anymore. He came up um, old school, the old fashioned way through the civil service system of the Bridgeport Police Department. It's, it's different structure today. Back then, you took a test and you rose up through the system, right? And um, he was one of the first to do that. He had a long reign. He was very, very controversial. He was investigated heavily by federal law enforcement agencies, including the FBI. In 1981, there was a boarded, an aborted sting attempt by the FBI against Joe Walsh, um, where they had listed this operative to offer him some cash. Walsh turned the tables on the sting attempt and, and arrested the FBI operative. And, you know, with all the work that the FBI did in Bridgeport, you know, one of the few guys they didn't get was Joe Walsh. Clever, intriguing, uh, genius, genius mind. Um, good for a young reporter, for information. You know, uh, one day I wrote something he didn't like, and uh, he iced me. He wouldn't talk to me. I called him, I called him, I called him, and he wouldn't take my calls because I wrote something he didn't like. It happens, right? So what am I going to do? I got to get to the police chief. You know, I want this information. I want to repair the relationship, you know, and uh, I said, I'll send him a singing telegram. And that was, um, that did the trick. Back, back in those days in the early 80s, singing telegrams were a big deal if you wanted to reach somebody. You just hired someone, they went in and sang a song, and I hired someone to go in Joe Walsh's office and sing a song. <laughs> and then I got a phone call. Okay, you got me, you got me. So, um, yeah, he, he was a fascinating person to cover. When you look at this story, um, although it took place in the 80s and, and the early 90s, why do you think it's important today with what's going on in policing in, in our country? Oh, law enforcement's uh, under, under assault, under siege. So, so much distrust, good, bad, or ugly. You know, I, I think it's, it's a combination of things where today, 2023, you're having law enforcement agencies all over the country having difficulty recu- recruiting men and women. And a lot of cops are retiring early, taking other positions. But the, the, the recruitment effort is just not there because of, of what's happened. So many controversial situations, you know, police abuse against innocent citizens, the lack of training, and, that at, and that's one of the failures in here. I mean, frankly, even when I was a young reporter, it wasn't hard to figure out that some of those cops could have easily been leg breakers for the, for the mob because the, the, the training isn't there, you know, and it's, I think it's starting to catch up but that's, that's such a key thing, uh, connections with people. Cops, you know, aren't used to taking a lot of shit from people. And, and that's the key thing. Like, where does someone cross the line? And you know, part of law enforcement today, you just, you have to roll with it a lot more if you get some pushback from people who, one, are afraid of cops, you know, to don't trust law enforcement. And to a degree, a large degree, law enforcement has given people that reason. I mean, there, 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 there's so many cases that I've gotten wrong. And unfortunately, the guys 
and women who do the job are victims in the process. The men and women who do the job correctly are victims of that process. Uh, so, you know, law enforcement today is, has a real challenge. You know, where is it going to end up? Who knows? But it, it's, it's a very um, challenging time for law enforcement, particularly in trying to recruit people to fill a lot of positions that need to be done. One of the more colorful characters in your book is Mariano Sanchez. I want to read you a passage. No one better symbolized this insanity, the formidable drug problem, and the disdain for authority than Mario Sanchez. He built a ruthless drug machine that scared the daylights out of the west end of Bridgeport. Sanchez patterned his inner city street gang after traditional mafia families. He was the capo, the head of the organization who controlled all of the illegal drug activity through a team of lieutenants, soldiers, and associates who in turn used people's bodies as collateral against snitching. They were number one and let everyone know it, modeling the number one family logo on jackets that Sanchez purchased for his members. Talk about Mario, Mariano Sanchez. So before I took on my relationship and project called Chase Alone Black and Undercover, the book, I was an administrative aide to Mayor Tom Busey, uh, who was mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut. And Tom Busey took office in 1985. And as we advanced into 1986, crack cocaine was nuts. In a city like Bridgeport, which then was probably, you know, roughly 140,000 people, you had a murder a week. You had, in in the mid-late 1980s, 60 to 70 murders a week. Now let's compare that to today. I'm sorry, 60 or 70 a year, I apologize. 60 to 70 uh, murders a year. Um, now it's like you probably have 15 a year. Maybe the high end twenty, the drug wars, um, the fighting, um, the, the turf wars, and the crack cocaine—it was just very violent business. Um, there was this church in the West End of Bridgeport, Connecticut, and um, the pastor there contacted the mayor and said, "I'm at a loss because these drug gangs." led by the number one family and they they were they were outfitted they they you know they had all the clothing they needed they, the jackets said number one family who we are and that that alone uh, made a statement of who they were and in being in control but this poor Roman Catholic priest had no peace inside of his own church and they made life really really difficult for him uh, and his parishioners. So he contacted uh, Mayor Tom Busey, and I had a conversation with the mayor <clears throat> based on what he was telling him, that internally, the Bridgeport Police Department didn't have the tools to take out this drug gang. It didn't have the tools. It just wasn't there. I said, 
you know, we need to walk down to the federal building and, and talk to federal law enforcement officials because of my work as a young reporter covering the FBI and the DEA and organized crime families. I had built contacts and relationships with federal law enforcement agencies. I said, why don't you let me make a phone call and we'll go see them. So I made a call and the mayor and I went to the federal building and there were 20 members of law enforcement there from a variety of different um, departments. And, you know, the mayor took the lead and started saying, listen, I got a, I got a problem here that I don't think we have the tools to get the job done. And little did I know at that time that I heard, I had heard of Billy Chase. I heard only that he was a deep undercover doing work. Um, and the federal law enforcement said, okay, we're gonna step up. We're gonna help on this. And they did, they did. Um, but that's when Billy Chase worked with federal law enforcement agencies to take out the number one family led by Mariano Sanchez. And it was, it was extraordinary work where he was wired up. And again, his gift for gab got him there. But he, you know, the, the Billy Chase, as a result of his work, gave a lot of people comfort because people were terrified. They didn't even want to get out of their homes. I remember the mayor, prior to uh, one of the trigger points uh, of the mayor saying, we, we need to do something, was a community meeting he had in the West End, right, of that, that church. And a lot of people from the number one family just showed up and laughed in his face and led left human feces and crack cocaine in the bathroom just just to sh show them who, like, who was who was in charge. That's how like ugly it, it kind of got. Or you had the police chief and the mayor there and they're all just laughing at him saying, what are you gonna do? What were they gonna do? They couldn't get it done. And so that's part of when Busey said, listen, we gotta, we gotta do something. There's a chapter that I think we haven't talked about and I was reading earlier titled um, Rich Druggies, Poor Druggies, Spring 1988, the imposing message on the black and white poster of a skeleton absorbed the eyes of anyone who walked into the classroom of Thomas Miller. Cocaine kills. It strips life down to the bone. Thomas Miller was a 42-year-old teacher who taught a course warning teenagers about the dangers of drug abuse at West Hill High School in Stanford, Connecticut. Sporting a doctorate in psychotherapy, Miller lectured students on human behavior topics such as family relations, sex education, and substance and alcohol abuse in his family life classes. Known as Dr. Miller, he was respected and popular. What else was Dr. Miller doing? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things he wasn't supposed to be doing. Um, that, that's, you know, people say you can't make this stuff up, and you don't have to. It, it just happened. And, and that's when I, I mentioned earlier that the work that Billy did was far beyond Bridgeport, Connecticut. It was into Lower Fairfield County, <clears throat> excuse me, where Stanford 
is located, you know, Stanford's you know, 30 miles uh, north of, of, of Manhattan. And there's a lot of influence from New York City into, into Lower Fairfield County. But yeah, that was a, uh, an intriguing story uh, when, when I, I sat down with Billy about some of the offbeat things that he did. Um, and I asked him, I said, you, you've done all these big gangs, you know, and like, what were some of the like more boutique nuanced work that you did? And that's one of the things he brought up. You know, and he said, well, he said, this was an intriguing case to work on because, you know, here is this guy preaching, you know, sainthood <laughs> to people, lack of a better word. That's essentially how to live your life correctly, right? And he's doing the exact opposite. And, um, you know, Billy, you know, he got some tip-offs about this guy and said, okay. I'll check it out. Not every every case Billy worked on led to something that was conclusive. Um, But this was one on a smaller level, but still very, very important message uh, to get out, unveil, and uh, pull back the curtain, and he did. Did you happen, in the midst of all this, uh, speak with Billy's parents? Uh, Got to know his parents uh, in the research of the book. Give me a sense of, of who they were and when did you speak to them before or after his death? Um, just talk me through that. Yeah, Billy came from a real, real solid family. Uh, his mom was um, the first African-American nurse to work in a Bridgeport hospital. You know, Billy, was, Billy was a black man raised Catholic and you don't find a lot of them. So he, as a result of that, he was exposed to all kinds of different ethnic groups and was able to roll with it. But my sense of his parents, just very good, decent people. He had nothing but compliments about his parents and having talked to both of them, you know, thought that, you know, he, he was structured in, in a very positive way in his life. Uh, I, you know, I think a lot of young guys, men and women, and when they're, when they're 17 and 18 years old, they're trying to, to find their own way try to make a statement of who they want to be uh, in their life. I, I think for Billy, you know, in 1981, when he came upon um, the mob hit of Frank Piccolo, in the, the summer of 1981, had a real impact of what he wanted to do, what he wanted to be. Frank Piccolo was a, a capo in the, in the Gambino crime family. He was um, arguably the most powerful uh, underworld figure in the state of Connecticut and uh, was shot to death by order of the head of the Gambino crime family um, back then because he got he got involved in a lot of different weird cases. He was indicted by the feds for allegedly extorting money from the singer uh, Wayne Newton and, and Lola Fulana. And th- that brought a lot of publicity onto the family that uh, apparently it didn't want. So at the corner of uh, Main Street and Jewett in 1981, Frank Piccolo was at a phone booth. The van pulls up, people pull out and his blow his brains out. Bullet in his chest was really one that, that killed him. And uh, Billy, as a young man, came upon that. The aftermath, he just saw a whole bunch of cops and people around. And, you know, he was, he was you know, a very young man at that time and, and said, you know, I'm thinking about a career in law enforcement. And that, uh, that stayed with him. And that's one of the things he always spoke about to me was coming upon the scene of that, of that mob hit. Was, that was not a uh, local story. The hit of Frank Piccolo was a national story. Um, and, and that was something that, that stayed with him for a very long time. How old are you when you write uh, Chaste? 34, 
33, 34. Yeah, um, started working on it. Yeah, I'm about 34 years old. That's, I, let me think now, yeah, 34. So as a journalist and a storyteller, um, I'll make the assumption throughout your life, there's probably been stories that are more important than others or stories that come to define you. How do you look at this story in your overall life now as you become an older man? And what, what kind of effect did it have on your life? How so easily people can be used and they don't even know it. There are just a lot of decent people that think they're doing the right thing. You give people a little, they're going to take a lot. They will take as much as you're going to give them. I think, think about people in your life, you know, people listening, examining their lives. Just go through everyone who's been in their life and say, people will just take what you want to give them for the most part. And that's a very cynical view of life. But I was raised that they're good guys and bad guys. You know what? I've met a lot of people in law enforcement who are just jerks. And I met a lot of people on the other side who just weren't that bad. And they were framed that way because of circumstances, how they were raised and trying to put food on their table. There's no, there's no perfection here. So for me, the tragedy of Billy Chase is a person thinking, I'm in the right place in my life and they're actually people who are gonna have my back. They didn't have his back. And that, that's one of the things in, the, in this tragic story um, that's, that's stick you know, with me forever. Now, at 33 years old, when you look at things like a book, um, films, etc., you know, like wine, with age they can become better. Um, they can have more meaning. At, th at 33, you probably wrote the book for a particular reason. And how old are you now? 64. So now at 64, is your thinking the same as it was when you were 33? Did you have the foresight to understand what you were actually writing about or the story you were telling? Not, not even close. I hadn't a clue. You know, when you're 33, you know, I had a couple of books under my belt, but nothing that were you know, huge or anything. And uh, for me, I just felt this was a right fit. Because of my background, having, you know, a, a, you know, law enforcement journalistic background, and knowing a lot of the different players, and having heard of Billy Chase, but not having met Billy Chase, um, Billy Chase's story was actually um, read by the late actor Danny Aiello. He read an article. I mean, Danny Aiello is one of the great character actors. He brought it to the attention of this. Um, literary agent named Frank Wyman. And Frank Wyman read the story about Billy Chase and how he had to leave and blah, blah, blah. It was a newspaper article. And he called the uh, the desk of uh, the Connecticut Post and said, listen, I think this is a book. Is there anybody in town you feel is a fit for? So Richard Peck, who was the managing editor, answered the phone and said, well, this guy Grimaldi, you know, he may be, he may be a fit for that. And so, you know, I took on the project without... I wanted to be published, right? Um, but I also wanted Billy to be able to tell his story as well. There was no money in it. I mean, people say, hey, you wrote a book. Uh, book writing is, is a, a glorious-sounding profession, but very few make money for a variety of different reasons. And, and back then in particular, 
you know, uh, it's a different world today. You had more publishers, but, you know, publishers take most of it. You know, I've written books independently that have made more money. But back then, I said, wow, this is a, this is a fit for me. I really wanted to do this. Um, but no, I didn't, ha I didn't grasp the full understanding of um, what this guy went through. Um, it was very, I mean, the process was very organic. Um, you know, I'm sitting here um, interviewing a black man, um, I'm, I'm, you know, a white guy, um, telling a, a story from a black man's perspective. Now add on to the stuff that, you know, African-American men have had to deal with in their lives and still do. So what I tried to do was once I decided to write it, we found this publisher, it wasn't a big publisher, it was New Horizon Press, it was willing to take it on. Uh, it was a very small advance. Um, I marinated in everything that was Billy Chase. I said, you know, what do you eat? And what music do you listen to? And, and where do you go? And I just, so I was just listening to his kind of music all the time to try to get into the spirit of, you know, his persona, his being, his interests, um, doing my own research uh, of, of things you know, he likes, just to, just to provide that kind of perspective because the narrative is in it's my narrative of my words, um, with deep quotation from Billy, a lot of which was from, you know, wearing a body wire that makes the book an intriguing read. But I only had ninety days to write the book, and it shows. And I go back and I, I look at this book and I go, God, you know, so I think certain passages I, I nailed. But a lot of it was like, God, really? <laughs> he really wrote that? You know, uh, but I had to write in 90 days because that's what the publisher wanted. You got 90 days. If you can't write in 90 days, uh, no deal because I want to kick this out for the Christmas season. You know, that's what, it, you know, I said, all right, fine. So I disciplined myself to write a thousand words a day for 90, for, for 90 days. And I came up with 90,000 words that got cut back somewhat and, uh, we managed, you know, to get it out. And, um, you know, it had a little, it had had some national intrigue. You know, Billy did a Today Show and the Daily News did a, did a profile on him and, and some other, you know, national media outlets as well. But, you know, it was quick, it was done. And then you kind of, you kind of, what's next? You know, and there were all, there were several offers um, to turn it into, you know, film and movies. And it was optioned several times for films. And I learned that it's really hard putting a, a movie together. And you've, you've done it. I mean, you've done, you've, you've done movies. I mean, you know how to do that. So you would know better than me how hard it is to put a film together. And, you know, I, I, people would call up and I want to do this book and blah, 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 and put the money together. And, you know, there are all, the, these, whole, all these scripts coming my way. No money coming my way. But then ultimately, no one could put the money piece together. You know, there were several you know, name people attached to this book. Um, I, I really wanted to get it done. Sure, I wanted selfishly wanted to get it done, but I really wanted it done for Billy too. Billy wanted it so badly. You know, on a couple levels. You know, he's honest. I'm broke. I don't have any money. Billy Chase didn't have any money, right? Um, 
with that little pension, you know, he got some jobs here and there, you know, decent jobs. I mean, you know, teaching at a local university about law enforcement and stuff. But he, he Billy um, didn't live big. He didn't have, you know, he didn't have, Billy did not have a big appetite for things. He didn't go out and spend lots of money. You know, he, he just didn't, he didn't do it. You know, if, if he had a fancy car, he was probably 30 years old and he fixed it up, you know. <laughs> so um, it, it was very workmanlike, you know, the, the whole process. But, you know, I, the, there were times where, ah, maybe it'll be something bigger. I'll have an afterlife, be an evergreen project. And then you go, okay, it's time to walk away. And then someone else calls, hey, okay, that doesn't work out. And you, So after a while, you don't get your hopes up uh, for it to, to be something. Um, but, you know, when he died, it, it took on a whole different meaning. When the book was written, it was like, this was kind of like the hero that nobody knew, but I was trying to tell people who wanted to turn it into a film, Billy Chase is not, he, he's, he's a tortured hero. And it, it don't frame him as, you know, a heavenly figure. He's not. And he knows that. He's an imperfect human being, a very decent, kind, smart human being. I think too often people are like, oh, yeah, this is perfect. It'll be like the, the black James Bond or something like that. I go, well, you know, uh, whatever. That's not how Billy was. You know, so, um, but then when he passed away, it, it, it came full circle about, I was telling people, this guy, if you're going to do something with this guy, you, you, it's just not the heroism. It's, it's the torture. It's the darkness. It's the fear that he lived with every day. And he had very few friends. It's like Billy couldn't go out to a local bar and have a beer. He, he, he couldn't do it. You know, it's a life of uh, disguises and accents and changing your voice and, you know, um, rolling with different personalities. It's schizophrenic. It's, it's a very schizophrenic way to live. Would you write a different book today? I think it would be more, a little bit more in depth. You know, having you know more than thirty years now, about thirty years down the road, and a, a different perspective. You know, I, I would like to have thought that you know Billy's book could have been made into something bigger, and there was always that chance. But I, you know, I could also see knowing his relationships, knowing the darkness he felt in life, that it could unravel. I mean, it did. 